Hello and welcome to Game Changing with me, Tim Thornton. And me, Chris Sheldon. In this podcast, we chat to various luminaries from the music world who we've met along the way. About those key moments in their careers where the stars aligned and it all started to go right. In this episode, Chris has a chat with, I think it's fair to say, one of the more unsung heroes of pop music, Dave Bascom. Dave has some pretty damn impressive mixing credits to his name. Suede's smash hit third album coming up, James's signature song Sit Down, and Placebo's classic Nancy Boy to name only three. But in the 1980s, Dave was a crucial part of three absolute bangers. He engineered Tears for Fears' globe-busting album Songs from the Big Chair, going on to engineer and co-produce the band's follow-up The Seeds of Love, as well as co-producing Depeche Mode's Music for the Masses. As you'll hear, Dave views his involvement in these records with typical modesty, as he tells Chris how he worked his way into the music industry and how he carved himself a reputation. We join the conversation as Chris and Dave discuss the development of what's now a producer's essential tool, the home studio. It's a, yeah, but it's kind of because it's all to do in the box. Yeah. Well, that, well it all changed, didn't it? Suddenly yeah. it, was, it was possible. And I was thinking that, you know, here we are sitting in your home studio, which is, is very similar to mine, which yeah. is very similar to, you know, Adrian Bushby's, everybody, you know, we've yeah. all got yeah. a similar kind of setup. And the first home studio that I ever worked at was working on a Roger Waters album, oh. right? And he had, a, he had a home studio, but his home studio also involved a Studer 880 oh, well, yeah. and a big Trident. I mean, they yeah. were kind of wrecked. They were like rock stars had home studios. Oh, well, I had exactly the same thing. For, I think the first, well, I was working for Jeff Rattel, so he had a little, I think he had a studio. But anyway, I was used to the idea of going to rock stars' houses. And when you're a few years younger than these people, it was so exciting. Yeah, oh, my see. God, yeah. And we did it. We took, we had a mobile. So we took the mobile to Roger Glover's place from Deep Purple. Did an album there. It, they were in the bar and we were in the So a quick outside. rewind. Is this, was Maison Rouge had its own? Yeah, had a mobile. Yeah, it originally was just a mobile. Oh, because we we got to talk about ah. your, your early days here. Yeah, because that was. I mean, like, when I started, it was when they just built the the bricks and mortar building in Fulham, and I was so, the last one in. Okay, so there's so much to talk about. This is this is great. But obviously, you you know, you got your job then, and I assume it was through the Trident Test method of writing letters. No, or? I mean, I, and of course, I'm going to say I've listened to all these programs you've done so far. They've just been. Brilliant, because oh, well, partly because well, obviously you're you're esteemed self, but um, <laughs> but mainly they're all all of a certain age, yes, and we all got the same similar kind of backgrounds, yeah. So it's so interesting. But I didn't actually write letters. I was um, in a band, and you know a few local bands that were going nowhere. But I was I was convinced. so not not signed or anything. no 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 long way off. Right, <laughs> I was convinced that was I was going to be the next Rick Wakeman, even though punk was at me. <laughs> anyway, the bass player saw an advert in Melody Maker saying Junior wanted for a London studio, and I was on the dole. I'd left school about a year before, and he wasn't interested. I went along. I have no idea how I got the job because I think it's the second week the advert been in there. They'd obviously seen a few people, and also had no idea that they'd get hundreds of letters a week. You know, and Maison Rouge was just literally built. Was it? Yes, I mean they say they had the mobile for. a couple of years or so. So when is this? When are we talking? 77 or 8, I can't remember that. Okay, alright. I've got the letters on with it. And am I right, sorry, just about, am I right in thinking that it was owned by Jethro yeah, Tull? that's right. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah. So obviously they built the, the mobile and that being successful and then he decided to branch out. It was still an investment in those days to run a studio, so. Um, yeah, and I was literally, I think I've been taken on just before the opening and my first jobs were like vacuuming the, well, actually carpet cleaning, you know, just crap stuff cleaning the boss's car you know like like most of us I think and um, oh god Tim was talking about being um, lippy on sessions wasn't he no yeah oh I love it and Dave Arena. well uh, ditto yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, my very first because we had a little in-house production company that never really did anything so my first session that I ever sat in on was my boss Robin Black who's Tull's main engineer doing a production on something and I was sitting on the back seat <laughs> I still remember what it was and the guitar that's done a solo and the note was hanging on and the chords are changing underneath it and I'm like well you know if you just change that note on the, when you slid it you know if you slid up a fret and Robin was like Robin was a lovely bloke he'd never tell you to fuck off but basically the look said it all <laughs> okay it's probably my place because I, I was the only one there who'd actually done any, I'd done demos with my band so right. I had been in the studio before so right. I was that smart arse who yeah, yeah, yeah. knew it all you know I mean nowadays if you're lucky enough to land a job in what's left of the London 
you know, studio scene, everyone's been through, you know, Full Sail or ACM or what have yes. you. So, yeah. you know, none of us, of course, had, but I suppose no. having been in a band and been in a couple of studios. Yeah. But it wasn't essential in those days. I mean, I say the other guys, a lot of people didn't, but... Um, so you've done bits, bits of engineering. Uh, you, obviously, you were assistant. Did Robin sort of show you the ropes as far as actual yeah, well, yeah, mic placement? And yeah, oh, yeah, there's boring. him and Tony Tavner. He was a fantastic engineer. It's a completely different way of doing things. Robin was really kind of... I mean, if he is, he won't mind me saying it, because he's pretty illogical. But, I mean, those sounds are just incredible, you know? Yeah. But, um, so Tony showed me the sort of more... Slightly more rigorous, let's say, you know, way of, of doing things. But then no, they're both they're both come out the studio models, so they both knew what they're doing. At the time, we only had one studio originally, and it was very much the seventies dead sound. And as far as I hated everything we were doing, there. I mean, we weren't yeah. at the cutting edge at all. No. And um, later on, in the early eighties, skipping forward, they well, first of all, we, we built another studio, we put Studio Two with an MCI in it. And then I'd been to the townhouse, and I think it was really me saying, well, we need a stone room. So we built the stone room at the back of like Studio, Studio 1. Two. Studio 1, it was. Well, Studio yeah. 2 at Townhouse, I mean. Oh, yeah, sorry. The, the, yeah, the back, wasn't it? Yeah. I, I heard all the Peter Gabriel stuff, you know, and uh, what he was doing, yeah. which, mm. you know, it was just so exciting. I just thought, this is what, this is what John should sound like. And um, so I tried a few sort of little techniques that I'd use to sort of copy it, you know, non-leaning, gated plate and stuff, you know. Anyway, I sort of persuaded um, Robin that we should put a Stone room in Major Ruins, which I think Duran used later on. You know, so. what power station? Power station. They, they were done the, there, weren't they? They were, yeah, that's right. Everyone yeah, thought yeah. it was in New York power yeah, station, but actually they were yeah, done yeah, at the end of Fulham Road. But I remember I did a, a couple of sessions down at Maison Rouge. I think engineering. I was producing something. I also engineered some stuff for Tim. I think. Oh right, okay. Uh, was it the, the House the of 80s, Love? Though? Yeah, about the eighties. Going to talk about the House of Love. And it was great. I mean, yeah. unfortunately, Maison Rouge. That would have been the SSL years, though, wouldn't it? That was. So what was it when you started? Uh, Helios. So it was really like a different era. I mean, when yeah. 1980 came along, it was like the whole world changed. The studio changed. It had a Studio Two, which is very East Lake, but still it was not let, not quite as brown as as the yeah. original Studio One. You know, with the brown Helios. And uh, we put the SSL in, of course. So that suddenly we jumped into that league, you know. And then you get you got Wham, Culture Club, Duran, all these people coming in. Well, it's it's incredible to think back now, but at the time, a desk. Would sell your studio. Yeah. You needed an SSL. You had to have an SSL. If you didn't, yeah. that was it. Yeah, yeah. You weren't getting any work. So when did you? Leave? I think I left. In, I think it was about eighty-one. And Jerry Boys, who was um, actually was engineering with Gus Dudgeon, he started working at a place called Livingston, and he offered me a job up there as an engineer. But it, it felt like years I was waiting at Maison Rouge for the the break, you know, because I'd been doing a few bits and pieces. Of, um, yeah, I'd been off to the record on the Bunnyman as a freelance engineer. And then I distinctly remember coming back from that and making the tea on Young Guns by Wham. You know. Back at Maison Rouge. Back at Maison Rouge. Right. And I thought, this has got, this has got to change. I can't do this anymore. You know. But I didn't want to go until I had something else lined up. And uh, Jerry eventually offered me a job at Livingston. It's funny because I, I spoke to one of the producers I regularly worked with at Livingston last year. And he told me something which I never knew. I said, I've never why Jerry gave me a job. He said, well, he said you had a vision. I thought, wow, that's interesting. I don't remember that. <laughs> you had a vision. I had a vision. Wow, <laughs> check you out. I know. It's <laughs> flattering. <laughs> Take me 30 years to find yeah. that out. <laughs> I wish I could remember what it was. Can you remind me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Maison Rouge was a great studio. So you would have been working down there from sort of 77 to kind of 80? 81. 81? Maybe, maybe 81, 82, something like that. And then you, were, then you were basically headhunted. Wow. Well, down yeah. to, down lived, to yeah. with your vision. Yeah. Down to yeah, Livingston. Man. Yeah. It was a culture shock, really, because Maison Rouge at that time was just coming up. As I said, you know, it's, we were doing all the bright, shiny pop stuff, wham, culture club, and Livingston was. It was like doing a lot of folk. I mean, it really was. You know, it's like going back ten years, and it was not cool. I mean, you know, and so I didn't. I stuck it out for I think a year or two, um, and I got a, I got some good contacts, but not enough. And then so eventually. I went freelance. Just a bit more detail. What happened, started happening was you get producer engineers coming in more and more into uh, Maison Rouge. And I found out like, they seemed to like me because, you know, you'd be not be more than assisting, more than tape in, but still not actually necessarily on the desk. Although I did a lot of work with a guy called David Henshaw, who produced Genesis. And yeah. um, he, he was the first guy, actually, I'd be up the desk, sitting at the desk with mixing. I mean, I just, he'd all, it all marked out. But they were quite complex mixes, so you really need to know, you know your chops. So you'd say, okay, for the bit, this bit comes in, move to that mark, mute this. You know. So you'd be on this sort of helping yeah, him doing it at the same time. I mean, you know, yeah. well, everybody used I to remember, get stuff yeah, in yeah, the desk, but this was just me and him, which was great, you know. And um, 
I've been involved in these projects, from, so I knew where everything was. I had intricate knowledge of it, but it's really enjoyable. And I was doing all the edits as well. So anyway, we got on really well. And then later on, there's a guy called George Nicholson, and he was doing uh, <laughs> the Nolan Sisters, all this kind of stuff. And I think he recommended me to Max Hole, who was the head of A&R, for the Bunnyman gig. Well, which which Bunnyman uh, was the porcupine? And um, so I, you know, I'd done a few bits and pieces for Max Hole, and including it's a material, amongst other things. I suppose it was gathering ground a little bit. So anyway, I was, but anyway, having left Livingston, I was at home one day, and I got a call from Max Hole saying, "Are you around today?" And I said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, Tears of Fears are in the studio, and they need an engineer." <laughs> so it's like. Right place, right time. So now this the is the premise of your podcast, mate. That was it. Well, the, okay. So this was yeah. the big, the big moment for you. So you're, so you would have been what age? You'd have been like twenty two, twenty three, maybe. Yeah, I think twenty two, twenty three, something like that. I think I was probably twenty three when I started Tears of Fear. So you, you're sitting at home twiddling yourselves. Yeah. And you get a call. They had to go up to Trident, the annex, Trident Two in Victoria. Right. I remember Trident yeah. Two. Yeah. And my ta- my assistant, my tape, my T boy was Alan Mulder. <laughs> That's where he started, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, I was incredibly daunted when I got there. I forgot everyone's name, so I remember walking in and going, uh, and I forgot when Chris used his name. And I said, "That's sort of awesome. So, had you met Chris? No, I not met any of them, none at all. So I walked in completely, you know, and they're quite a little bit intimidating. So, well, I think it's intimidating any bit to work with anybody in that situation. But they came across a little bit prickly, you know. I mean, Roland was not an easy person to get to know, so it was was a bit daunting. Chris was fine, you know. Um, but I think, I mean, Roland says it all the time. I was kind of just well, just a bit of background on Tears of Fears. They, they'd done the first album with a guy called Ross Cullum Engineering, who's basically very much Chris's mate. And I think Roland had found it quite, you know, a bit of a battle with the Axis. And it, it was, there were a lot of, I mean, Tears of Fears were very tortuous, the process. Everything was heavily discussed, every little point. And I think um, they, Roland didn't really want to repeat that. And I was the guy who was just really easy to get along with, you know, so... Um, but it was. I mean, I was, and I was interested in the things that Roland was into, which is the, the day-to-day sounds. I mean, we were both we, we were both really into modern sounds, which Chris really wasn't that bothered about that side of it. So when you I say was, modern sounds, well, are you talking like, about like well, the keyboard, keyboard sounds and, and drum sounds? Well, yeah, mm. both really. But mm. for example, um, in the track called "Pale Shelter," it's got what I'd call a modern snare sound, a kind mm. of gated thing. You know, mm-hmm. now Chris never liked that. Chris wanted a more. Chris was very into traditional kind of seventies dead sounds. And I remember Roland asked me as a kind of little test, would you do that? I said, that sounds fantastic. Or Pale Show, he sort of turned to Chris and went, there, so you go. <laughs> so I was this kind of ally in that sort of point scoring, you know. Right. Um, but, you know, so I don't, I mean, as I said, I don't claim to have any influence on that album at all, really. I mean, it was, there was like three very intelligent people with big egos there, and I'm not going to rock the boat. And I think that's that was my role, and that's fine. I'm happy with that, you know. But you were into. They, they were talking about songs from the big chair. I mean, you were integral to it, man, because of the way that wow. I remember buying that album and just thinking, "Well, I know nothing." Really? And I, honestly, I well, again, what's changed? Uh, well, nothing. Yeah. And I remember buying that record, and and I think it, it kicks off with Mother's Talk. Or well, no, it's off with shout, but yeah. Sorry, yeah. Well, well, the saying, first track I played was right. Mother's Talk. I don't yeah, know why. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe I'd heard it on the radio or something, right, yeah. and I put it on. I was like, "Fucking hell, this yeah. is unbelievable!" Well, it I mean, it is a. It, I mean, obviously they're they're fantastic songs. Yeah. But the way that they'd been presented and engineered yeah. and mixed, it, it was a real eye opener for me. And it was just like, okay. Well, that's what we, they were working on when I first started, and I remember they exactly the same. I thought this is just gobsmacking, you know, but. Um, and it was Ian Stanley, wasn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But he was the one who was sitting there with his, that old micro-composer, I think it was an MC4. MC4, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. one that Human League used to use. And he was just sitting there, heads down, typing this <laughs> like a computer, you know. Right. So he did Mother's Talk, mixed it in air, I think. Was that the first track you did, Mother's Talk? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what they were working. That's the first track they got back, the first track we did on the album. Right. They'd done it with, um, they kept they keep sacking Chris Hughes, it's a bit of an in-joke. Uh, they'd gone off and done it with Jeremy Green. But that, that didn't work out, needless to say, for okay. one reason or another. I don't right. know why. And they got Chris back. And I think... I don't know if it's Chris's first day back in the studio with them, and that's why there wasn't an engineer. I could only surmise that. But it felt like they'd done a bit of work on it already. So I just don't know. You know we, um, but I know there's 48 tracks. There's a lot of Jeremy Green stuff still there, some of which was replaced, some of which was kept. And, and so the track had already been started? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's been started. Yeah. And, and the bones of it was had been done. And we didn't start all over again, certainly. 
So I don't know how much of Jeremy's stuff's on there or not. But, um, and were you were you given obviously once you sort of once you'd proved yourself? Were they quite sort of? I mean, I I don't know Chrissy's, I don't know the band or anything, but were they quite happy for you to sort of? assume that role the, in, with the mixing and it, or were you yeah it was kind of well, back then as you remember it was like mixing wasn't a big deal it was like no, you finished really the recording and you mixed it and that's, that's so that was yeah that's the way it worked so yeah I mean once I was in I was in I think you know. the thing was I was going to say but after we'd done that um, I think actually we mixed it at Trident we did a few various mixes and um, then I was, I was booked to do the album and it all went quiet I spent what felt like forever I think a few months at home and I'd ring Chris every now and again I didn't want to hassle him and he kept saying yeah yeah, yeah yeah and I really thought they'd gone somewhere else yeah, yeah. but it turns out that um, for Tears with Fears fans they'd know this but Roland uh, Chris had said like we need some more songs give Roland the famous couple of months off and um, he'd gone away and come up with Shout basically uh, and by the by the bones of what became Everybody Wants to Rule the World so anyway they worked Shout was just a chorus so Chris, Ian, and Roland have been in the studio developing the whole rest of it, which you know, all the verses, all the middle bits, and it's obviously a pretty complex structure, so it took a long time. They were basically working the demo of that, and then when they finally got that to where they wanted it, then I got the call and we went down and started recording the rest of the album, including that. And where were you doing that? That was all at Ian's house, um, and that's another reason that I was just been so I've been reading this interview that Roland did today about it, um, and it was a, the, the hurting was expensive pretty fraught a lot of tension inexpensive you know air studios or whatever cost a fortune um, long days because you had to in those days to make most yeah. of the hours so this was Ian Stanley had a, um, what had started as a pretty basic home studio and then it, we, you know they bought a Atari 24 track a little Soundcraft desk and enough gear to make a record so we did we, made, we did it all there and it was great you know it, it was, um, There's something really fun about making uh, records in people in houses uh, and stuff like that. Isn't it? It's the really whole atmosphere fun. is utterly different. You know? It's very relaxed. Yeah, that's the yeah, that's, yeah. It, that's the whole point of it, isn't it? And, yeah. You know, we'd have dinner. We'd sometimes have dinner there, all around the big table, or we'd go out to you know whatever. Um, you know, go out to Moles Club in the evening. It was yeah. That? No, I remember <laughs> yeah. that. But I was also something else that um, you know I was thinking about. That was sort of. Early, well, mid-ish eighties, wasn't it? It's about eighty-four. I think it came out in eighty-five. Well, right, Mother's Talk came out first, maybe the back end of eighty-four. Right, so so I was still with okay. So out. between eighty-three and eighty-five yeah, is when you were yeah. really making the yeah. record, and they, that was firmly analog days. Yeah, well, yeah, by necessity because there wasn't any. No, well, there was nothing else. Well, I mean, we digress here. We were so in, we so hated the old world, analog. It was, it was just all boring crap. So the F one had just come out. Do you remember the F one? No. Sony F1. This was a domestic digital recorder. Yes, I do remember. It worked on yeah. Betamax tape. Yes, I do remember it. Uh, a videotape. And it was awful. But we just thought, it's digital, it's got to be great. So the whole album was mixed on that. Which is just... Wow. And now it's just... What, the, the, the actual... The half-inch, the two-track. Yeah. The, I do remember that, because yeah. they had one... I think we ran half-inch as a safety. I really hope we did, because God knows what they're using to remaster things from now. Oh. Um, but no, I remember we bloody mastered it off this F1 thing. Oh, what a nightmare. And in fact, the BBC's band anybody's record that had been made of one because to, the to, top end was all out of phase well to find things as well literally oh. there was a little counter yeah it was it was, it was a domestic imagine the chance of wiping over the end of the, the previous mix you know? well it struck me that, that you and the band you see, were quite sort of early adopters of all the new oh, tech yeah, yeah. that was going on I mean I was I loved it the first time I heard a Lin drum I just thought this is it this is the future get rid of those boring drummers who are out of time and arseholes yeah. <laughs> this is ridiculous now but it was it was very 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 exciting and uh, well we had pretty much the kind of cream of the crop of the state of the art I mean, there wasn't a huge amount of stuff then but we had we had a Profit 5 we had an Emulator 2 no it was an Emulator 1 2, Emulator 2 wasn't out Profit 2 uh, Fairlight 2 the Lindrum obviously we used a lot the Drum Emulator which we used for bits and pieces DX7 I think that was oh and a PPG Wave that was quite integral well that was yeah, that, that was, was a gnarly thing yeah yeah it was gnarly is a good word for that yeah yeah that that went out on quite a few things yeah because yeah. it struck me that that part of your career was very much part of that cutting edge modern tech yeah. sounds and stuff would you yeah. say that's absolutely yeah that's I, loved right. it. I loved it and of course we had reverb to, you know, for days for days <laughs> yeah <laughs> we kept all these hire companies afloat with more lexicons renting lexicons yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah quite famous for that but um, yeah and that's what we were talking about. yeah the, basically the reverbs were all pretty much all lexicon bit of AMS you know, but, yeah yeah now, also around that time, did you do some stuff with Peter Gabriel? That was that was quite a lot later. Well, actually, it wasn't that much later on. Um, 
Was it? Was that? that well, that was pre Seeds of Love. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it was. Um, I don't know, maybe eighty six, eighty seven. Um, that didn't work out really, to be honest. It was just. Um, this was, was down at his little place. Yeah, he had, didn't in Ashcombe. Yeah, yes. lovely. Well, say lovely, but it was. Um, <laughs> well, it was like it seemed. It was. Like, it was like a garage. It was, but, but it was a big barn. Down to see it. Cows used to come and look in the windows, you know. But it was. It was typical Peter. I mean, you know, obviously, lovely, incredibly talented man that he is. Totally nutty, you know. I mean, so he'd have. He'd been talked into buying this tape machine, which is basically the, the, the mechanical bits of the Studio A80, but all the electronics were built by some boffin. Never worked properly. I mean, see, the difference between that and Tears of Fears was night and day, because Tears of Fears, they were the same age, it was fun. If I had to do an edit, they'd go off and play pool or something and let me get on with it. With, with everything had to be... You couldn't disturb the flow. It was absolutely crucial with Peter. So we'd be doing a backing track, and we'd be overdubbing a whole band on top of a 48-track session that was already chock-a-block. So the Hyatt would be on track 23, and the bass drum would be on 47. You know, and half the toms would be on five, and the other one would be... It was logistically a nightmare. And then um, you'd get that all set up, and everything had to sync up afterwards, and you had to edit everything in time, even real drums, but you had to keep the, the lin drum in time as well. It was impossible. Yeah, and keep the synth in time. Right. It was just logistically no kind of sense of what was... You know, just do it, you know, get on with it. And, right. Um, Anyway, so I remember one thing when we were doing drums with, I think probably Manu, Catch and Peter would get an idea for something and he'd just grab one of Tom Tom mics, <coughs> got a bit of African percussion and start, back, find a track for this. Okay, track 49, bash it out, and you get a groove towards the end. I think, oh, that's great, you know, let's go and get it from the, go back with that groove. But no, no, just park it somewhere. So, okay, get another slave out. You do all this, I mean, you know what, logistically and technically, it was really hard and time consuming. So, just right? stuff all over the place. Stuff all over the place. <coughs> so this would get shunted off somewhere right and then you you try and reset the tom tom mic to what it was without any recall you know while the musicians are hanging are waiting for you or everything i know i mean flood these people i remember him talk that's kind of he, he thrives on that kind of stuff but um i i just i just felt they weren't on uh, it, was, it was like a battle really yeah. didn't get on with daniel in a while i wasn't doing a great job so we basically agreed to um Agreed to disagree, yeah, 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 and, and moved away. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes it just happens, doesn't it? That you, you know that you find yourself in those situations, and I think everybody yeah. finds it at certain points, and you just think, "I'm not the guy." For no, this. no, absolutely. And when Pete was lovely, lovely man. He gave me a lovely credit. I'm an engineer by Dave Bascom, and I, I don't know how much of it they they kept. But I mean, I had done a few things on there, but you know, I would been, I was surprised when I saw that, and that's just just a token of what a great bloke he is. Because, yeah. You know, um, I hadn't thought that with him. I think he's just absolutely marvellous. I think uh, Kevin Killen, didn't he? Well, That's right. To go from him. you, I think. I know, I mean, I've seen various interviews and they had to completely reconstruct everything, go on to digital and Mitsubishi and sort of rebuild the whole thing because I kept trying to tell you, it wasn't, I don't take blame for that because I had tried to flag it all up, you know, but yeah. you can't edit simply. It was, a very, it was a very interesting time, I think, you know, because it was trying to just squeeze the new technology yeah. into old school yeah. recording yeah. methods. But it was exciting because it, it was, was pushing exciting the boundaries. and nightmarish. It, and nightmarish, time. absolutely. But, you know, the Tears of Fears were totally into the whole thing. So we were, I was giving, you know, if, if I had to do something like that, yeah. So, you, so, so no, was, no one was breathing down no, your neck. Absolutely. But, see, that's what, what a lovely thing. But it also assumed I knew what I was doing. You know, so, yeah. um, but you did. Yeah, well, I did, yeah, I think, yeah. But also, yeah. I think, you know, for a lot of these things, they'd never happened before no so we had to find ways of doing but I do stuff. think some people hadn't you know some of the old guys hadn't really kept up with this sort of stuff I'm a bit like us now it's, it's hard to keep up you yeah. know this is the most boring podcast well, no, I, no I don't think it is because I think that the people are fascinated in how things were done and how it led on to stuff yeah. because th- then there was a sort of like you know digital recording yeah, started yeah. to sort of Sneaking, yeah, but I think what the point is, you're right, it, it was hugely exciting not just because it was a new bit of kit to play with a new toy, well, but a lot of it was that, but it had a new sound, you know. So we were making new sounds, yeah. I mean, Trevor Horn was at the forefront of all that, and his records were just yes. staggering. And we, I think I certainly aspired to all that, you know, just these soundscapes that would never been possible before, yeah, you know. And everyone knows he'd go through torture to, you know, in the same way we did, but just, uh, just to get pushing yeah, it, pushing you, it, you know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a great time. So in between those, there was a sort of three or four year gap between the Tears of Fears records. Yeah, yeah. And what sort of things were you up to then? Well, I did a few things. First, first thing that I, I think this is, well, I did Depeche Mode, Music for the Masses. And this was production? That was co-production. Okay. And it was pretty much what I'd done with Seeds of Love, to be honest. It was, um, 
engineering, but you know, and and not really steering it in any great way. Not like flooded, you know, by any means. But it was um, Alan Wilder basically was in charge of that, and I was kind of um, putting my stamp on it in a in a subtle way, I guess, mm. you know, just doing what I do. But uh, I think before that, I've been as a producer, I started doing a few productions, and I did a band called Danny Wilson. I was going to ask no, you about this yeah. now, because that is just fantastic. We're talking about uh, Mary's Prayer. Mary's Prayer, yeah. Which yeah, is yeah. an incredible song. An incredible, and it, it still fantastic sounds song, it? fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know, you hear it on the radio. I mean, I hear it probably once every three weeks. Really? Oh, my God, man. I didn't know it was on that much. Oh, my God. I seem to constantly, maybe it's because I just an old-timey <laughs> radio. <laughs> well, that's that, I mentioned that because partly because it's one of the few productions I've done. That actually, it was the first production I think I've done that was actually a hit. Which is, you know, huge. Yeah, bona fide hit. Not, yeah. And um, but I was going to come. On, I was going to come to a more general point, which is all the other guys you've done. I think producers so mm. far. And I know you do a bit of production, same as me. But I say we're both pretty much mixers, you know, more than producers. Well, I think now, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I've kind of drifted into that, and I'm happy to that because I think Mary's Prayer. I had definitely had a vision for it. I really did. I had quite a strong vision. And luckily for me, they'd done the whole album with another guy, quite spent quite a lot of money at Puck Studios, and. It hadn't. It, the singles hadn't really worked out, particularly Mary's Prayer. So I got not carte blanche, but I, I you know, they, they got me back in, and um, well, not back in, but they, kept, they got me in. But they kind of lost track a little bit, and so I, and I had a strong vision. So I said, right, I think we should do this, 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 this. Slow it down, blah blah. And um, and it worked out, and I think everyone was very happy with it. So that was was great, you know. But I didn't have to really push against anybody with you know set um, set ways, which I think. Anyway, my point I'm coming to really is that I, I don't, I mean, I'm not a producer and I think the other guys you've talked to have got a very different job and um, I've never really enjoyed it since because I don't think unless you've got their vision, which I don't really have, I don't really follow everything that's, that's going on to, as much right. as, as you need to, you know, to have to look points of reference. Um, and I enjoy mixing, you know, I just, I've drifted into that luckily, but... Um, well, okay, yeah, we'll get on to that because I think there was definitely seemed to be a point when you know, I certainly started to become more aware of you as a as a force to be reckoned with, <laughs> as a mixer. But going back a bit before that, just one thing you touched on, and I didn't know this, you said that you were, when you were mixing Songs from the Big Chair, you were in Munich, was it? Yeah, we mixed it, um, bulk of it in uh, Munich. They just wanted to change, like a lot of people did back then. What was the studio there that you were? What was it called? This weird place. Um... I can't remember. Oh, Union Studios. Right. And I went out for a weekend, or well, a day, just a day trip, just to check it out. You know, which is, again, that was really exciting as a kid. You know, yeah. Ticket to, to Munich. Um, it had an SSL, basically, that's what we wanted. But it really wasn't equipped for our sort of stuff at all. Okay. Because it was an Umpar studio. But in the main studio, <laughs> we were in the mix room, but in the main room, you just hear. There's a lot of later hoses yeah, going all on. That stuff going on, which is hilarious. <laughs> but also, they ran out of patch calls and stuff like that all the time. And I remember, this is classic, rather. The studio guy, oh, the studio manager's name, Hair Curler. No. <laughs> Hair Curler. K O E H L E R. Just wonderful. Anyway, but, uh, we'd run out of patch cords, and the, 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 uh, this guy came in and said, Lovely man. He said, uh, Well, I can get some from this other studio, but you know, can you pay for the cab? And like, we all kind of went, Yeah, whatever. You know. And Ryan said, No. It's your job. You run out of patch cords, you bloody pay for the cab. You know, this is typical Roland. You know? <laughs> so, uh, Anyway, yeah, that's that was fun. Yeah, so we went to Europe, but then we came back and we had obviously. I mean, I do remember things there. We did the vocal for everybody to all the world there because we that was the last track we worked on. We did a little synth that's in the second verse, and we must have. I think we hired a prophet for that, but we didn't have any sequences. So that's the, pretty much the only thing on the record that does anything like that. That's hand played. Actually played. Yeah. It still nice. sounds like it to me. I can still tell almost. You know. Really? Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Obviously, you know. yeah. But, do you, I mean, um, do you still have that thing where even now? I mean, how many? 25 years later or whatever 35 mate 35 30, last week it was it came out 35 yeah, yeah. I mean I, I still listen to some records that I've done in the past some of them it's almost like listening to I don't even remember Someone being involved with it yes yeah. somebody else's record yeah, yeah. and there's other ones that I listen to and I think God, and I can still oh, hear absolutely. the errors absolutely. Or, oh, I can remember moves I did on the mix you know yeah. some of those Genesis albums I can remember putting some reader on the bass for one line every time I hear the record now it's ridiculous. Yeah. I got, um, but it also, but it was, you know, I was young, hugely important part of my life, you know, and um, yes, yeah, so I remembered so much detail about it. But inevitably, everyone else remembers different things. So, do you think that you were doing obviously you did the Danny Wilson thing that you would you did, you know, I mean, obviously the, the Tears for Fears things were these sort of two enormous 
projects in your life. Mm. I mean, and, and there's sort of before and after tears yeah. and fears in a lot it of weird sort of ways. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I mean, in between times, did you get in more into production? It was the Danny Wilson thing. Well, I did that, and I did, I did quite a few bits of production. Did some stuff with some Material, where I hit with Drying Away from Home. Um, so I can't remember the mixing was the mixing was starting then I think, mm. and I don't remember that much other production to be honest. But there must have been a few things. Um, so probably there wasn't that much time between that and Depeche Mode, and then after Depeche Mode, I mean that was I think the Tears of Fears things came pretty soon after that. Did you ever? I mean, obviously I know you're a, a keyboard player, and did you ever get into sort of writing with bands well, or anything like that as a producer? I mean, I suppose I would have done it if I thought it needed it. Uh, it never came to the point where. But you were quite happy to sort of go, I've got an idea. Oh, absolutely. Well, as yeah. a producer, you have yeah. to. That's the whole, well, yes, you do. You know? I mean, yeah. but, but that's one of the reasons, if I haven't got an idea, I don't think I should be doing it, you know. But um, me, but as far as writing a part, I don't think it, I ever felt the need for it. Um, in fact, there was, a, I did a name dropping, but I did a, much later on, I did a, some mixes with the Manics, the Manic Street Preachers. James said that I had, apparently said, um, when I'd heard the rough, the, whatever it was, the pre-mixes, um, well, that one needs a guitar, so I don't know which track it was, but he said, that needs an extra guitar part. And I said to him, bloody hell, that's a bit presumptuous of me, wasn't it? <laughs> he, said, he said, well, I think I'd mentioned it to Rob, the A&R guy, not to the band themselves, you know. And he said, but we went away and did one, and it, it needed it, and it was dead right. So that was, that was, but James, that's great. he's one of the nicest men on the planet, isn't really, James? So obviously you did a bit of production one of you, and then Seeds of Love started. Yes. Happen. Now, one thing I, I just wanted to ask about this was... Um, I know that it was obviously there were some false starts and what have you. Yeah. And am I right in thinking that they originally started with Clive Lang and Alan Winston? Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, were you involved in that? No, 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 no. Okay. No, I mean, it was, I still sort of socially saw them, but not that much because I was doing, I was quite busy. I was in London, obviously. Um, but they wanted to change, as they always do, you know. And um, they, I think they liked, they love shipbuilding. That's a song that um, Clive co wrote. With Elvis Costello, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so they wanted some. Ron is always looking for songwriting partners, and I think he really wanted that input. Um, but it just didn't work out for whatever reason. I mean, some of those tracks have resurfaced or will resurface. I think they're reissuing Seeds of Love soon. But I, I'm actually thinking that they wanted to move away a bit from the ultra sort of oh, modern. Very much, yeah, yeah. Well, basically, they hated Ron hated the touring process with everything on a Revox, all the back, you know, the, the um, drum loops and stuff, whatever. Um, that couldn't be recreated having to play to a Revox being stuck with the same running order the same tempos every night like most people now do you know most pop bands a Revox yeah and a Revox yep, using a Revox to yeah wow yeah okay. well, you know there was pre multi-track digital workstations yeah, and all that kind yeah, of stuff yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it got totally sick and then of course famously they saw Alita Adams playing in this little bar in Kansas and it was the opposite of what they were doing, you know. It was someone who was just singing from the heart, and you know, well, it, it's not, it was nothing there, no technology, you know, just no. playing the piano you know, um, from a diff completely different world. Mm. And um, that just inspired them to do something completely different. Whether they succeeded, I don't know, really. But, oh um, no, they undoubtedly did. So, so they started with Clive and Alan, and that that didn't work out. Yeah. Then were you? Chris was asked to come back in again, and it's pretty much a repeat. Actually, I seem to remember got a call from someone. Saying, oh, they had no. They started with a different engineer as well. <coughs> Someone I can't remember who it was, and that hadn't worked out. So they decided, and I think they heard actually. The Roland Kurt had heard Danny Wilson, <coughs> and really liked a track called Davy. Um, anyway, they'd heard that, and I remember Roland thinking, "Well, Mary's prayer is all right, but this is really nice." So they thought, you know, obviously I'd moved along a bit, and um, it would be good to have me back on the team. So I got a call, uh, went up to Roland's house because I thought that's, they had been working there. No one had told me where to go. <laughs> because he rolled out of the studio there so I turned up there and this he, is down in Bath no 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 he'd moved to London by now well, right. he had a place he had houses in Bath and London but he bought the place in London with a studio at the top and uh, I'd been there I think a couple of times well, I'd obviously been there a few times I knew where it was um, so I turned up there and they weren't there they were there <laughs> so <laughs> I trucked on down to air um, and uh, yeah so we started doing some live stuff with Chris playing drums I don't think any of that got used at all that album was just a lot of fumbling around trying to find. Whereas and at this, the at this stage, channel, you were still like engineered. Yes, so I was basically engineering that that you know, the project. Um, yeah, I was brought back as the engineer. So it was kind of trying to well, get back to a bit of the ethos of um, songs of the big chair. Although everything else around it had changed, really, the whole direction had changed. And um, 
I mean, I think I don't. I think Crystal Mime, if he hears this, I don't think your mind is saying, but I think everyone had lost the plot, really. I mean, Roland had some sort of the back of his mind that he knew what he wanted, but he didn't really know how to get there. And Chris, there was a lot of, you know, how do you follow up that massive previous album? I think everyone was floundering a little bit. Well, I think Chris also, particularly did an outstanding job on not seeing this love, but I didn't think he really had an idea what, where we were going with this one, to be honest. So it was a bit rudderless, I thought, you know. Well, I think it's also quite tricky when you've had such an enormous record and the artist wants to go in a, in a different yeah, direction. Yeah, yeah. And you're immediately being thinking, but, but, well, of course. but that, yeah, you yeah. know. And but actually, I have to redress that in case he does this, because Chris did pretty much the same thing again on Season of Love. He said, Roland, you haven't got enough songs here. Right. Go away. And Roland came back with Sewing the Season of Love and The Woman in Chains, you know. Wow. So if nothing else, okay. Chris deserves, you know, yeah. just the most, the biggest big up for that. Um, but in terms of, I mean, Woman in Chains was a good example. We, oh, we did so many bloody versions of that. We were down this this point, when we did a, basically a tour every studio in Britain, just for, you know, for to change, we just go away. A lot of us done at Roland's house. And then we went to Real World when it's just been opened before they built the big room so we were upstairs in what became Peter's room and we just sat there for days working on Women in Trains because it didn't have a middle eight to me it was so well I didn't not that I I can't say I was going oh I need a middle eight but as it subsequently turned out that's what it needed so Mm. we just had this endless the middle section went on for days minutes minutes Mm. and minutes Mm. so we were you know there's a lot of this and I just thought this has really lost that focus we had before on the the previous album which um, was a really Disciplined, but you know, everyone pulling in the right direction. Yeah, um, this was the opposite, really. You know, so yes. Yeah, so by Chris, this time, it was just you and the boys, was it? Or? Well, no. Chris basically got fired off off the, off the session. Ian had left. Ian Stanley had been involved recently. He played this brilliant organ on Sons. That was the kind of only Sons of Love was almost like the old days because it was it wasn't a bunch of session guys. It was the band in the studio with Chris on drums, Kurt playing bass, Kurt playing bass. Mm. Roland playing. Um, oh, so the drums on that are Chris. Chris, yeah, he's a genius Ringo Starr impersonation. Yes, no, he's he, yes, I mean, and that that yeah. opening fill. Yeah, it, it is. Just, yeah. Really, so Kurt's on bass. Roland's on a sort of big DX7 thing, doing like a whirly part. Um, Ian's on the organ. You know, just oh, a band. And it's great organ. Band, too, absolutely yeah. great organ. Yeah. Um, although he just he won't admit it. He's just he's just the world's. We tried to get him to do another solo because basically, yeah, we then spent weeks editing this bloody thing. So um, what you did multiple takes? Oh, oh God, yeah. Oh yeah, did we? I'll tell you the story behind that. Basically, we did, didn't want to use a click. And sorry, where was this being recorded? This is at a townhouse. Townhouse. This is a townhouse. We moved to townhouse by then. Mm-hmm. So um, we didn't want to do it with a click. So I remember we got. There's a rumor that they used, or Roland seems to think it was "I'm the Walrus" as the kind of template for the. the so I'm convinced it was. Cheese and Onions off the Ruttles album. And I remember <laughs> borrowing the album from John. We had a mutual manager, John Reed, and I think I've never given it back. Anyway, yeah, yeah. anyway who cares? It doesn't really matter. But we, so we did endless, endless takes, obviously trying to stick to a tempo, so that all these takes would intercut. But later. not being using a clip. Not using a clip. So then we spent another you know, d- days with Chris. Chris was responsible for all the edits, and um, it, didn't fit. it didn't work. It sounded all right, just listening to the drum track. You know, playing back, but then they all went out to play on top of the drum track, and it just it just felt terrible. You know? So then we thought we had to. But this point, we had a, only had a day left, but only a day. You know, you do an album today, but <laughs> so we had a day. And I did recently. <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> one day to this drum track. You know. Oh my, oh my god! god. Yeah. <laughs> but we were, program- we were programming the tempo changes in on. I can't remember what it was as we went. Um, I know it's on the Lin drum. That's right. So and I had to keep notes of it because obviously we were going to intercut them later. So that you know they basically start the verse at such a tempo go up in the first chorus maybe down again a little bit in the second verse. lots of tempo changes going on programmed though. and they would change so within the first two takes would have it'd be the same except for the, the end we'd go up one more BPM and they'd all be different variations so I had to make meticulous notes so I knew what would chop together um, anyway so we'd ask and then we then we'd um, yeah it was done on um yeah, we did it on. We got the Mitsubishi Thirty Two Digital by then. So you moved over to digital recording. Well, we had recorded on digital, but we did the edits on analog. We copied it onto analog to do the edits. Oh, oh my cool. God. Oh, I know. <laughs> and then we copied it all back onto digital. <laughs> but anyway, the point of this story. <laughs> two hours ago, I mentioned the organ solo. <laughs> Fuck me, it's going to be the longest podcast. Ever. I love it. Anyway, that organ solo just happened to be the one that was played at the time for the drums. We were only looking for the drums. That's all we were interested in. Nothing else. And um, 
So that but you were all still playing together. Well, they, to record everyone played. Yeah, everyone yeah, played at okay, the same time. Right, right, yeah. So just ha- so in case we thought, okay, we got that. So Ian, go and do another take of the organ, will you? No, I'm not interested. So then we offset every other take for that solo spot to see if it was better organ solo, and there wasn't. And then we, that just happened to be the one that was. I mean, shock off. Off the cuff. Yeah, I mean. These bands that do everything together. Yeah, I know. Yeah, these oh, musicians who perform. We things. really rebelled against our own rules here. We used the organ solo. It just happened. <laughs> but also, I mean, this was it was the start of kind of a bit of free. Although it sounds ludicrous, it was freeing up things a little bit because a lot of the vocal we ended up using was the guy vocal that Roland screamed and shouted at the time. So he said to me, you know, can you distort the mic? Get me the John Lennon-y kind of thing. And I didn't, I didn't bother plugging in a box or anything. I just screwed the mic gain up. Yeah, didn't pay any attention to it really. And that was the vocal that we ended up using a lot of. Yeah. And on some of the edits, I actually know if you solo the vocal, it's going. Obviously, we were focusing on the. Well, because you know, yeah, but, but, but you don't but, notice that stuff. But isn't that always the way? Those things that you because you're not worried about. Of course. It, you do those yeah. performances, don't well, you? Well, that's the same you know? with B-side syndrome, isn't it? How many B-sides have turned out because you're not worried about it? So yeah. The B, all, I've always done with everybody, particularly with Tears of Fears. B-sides has been so much fun. So much low pressure. Yeah. You know, and they, I mean, some of them are actually much better than more than Beatles, but even if not, I still enjoy them for what they are. You know? Well, just going back to what we're talking about writing, I mean, the only thing I've actually written that's got a publishing deal was a B side with Tears of Fears right. um, later on. And there's a weird little track that Roland had, which is just a little riff going around in a weird time signature. And then he'd gone home one night and there was a synth knocking about, and I just started messing around with some chords. And he came in the next day and liked it, and so we expanded on it a bit. And, um, he gave me a cover, which is lovely, on that track. Fantastic. And it, it, it became the uh, the next single when Tim had started working with them. Which I've got to say, I thought was, bloody hell, this is odd choice for a single. I mean, it really was. That was a B-side that should have stayed a B-side. Right, right. They, wrote, they rewrote the verses completely. Yeah. Um, but that was such a great... And I mentioned this the other day. What I love about our job is... watch, And I don't get to see this very often these days. Is watching people create. And, um, and that was rolling on form. And it's just a joy to watch because... The whole lyric and the, and the vocal and there's an sort of intertwining guitar solo he does that goes in between the gaps and around the vocal. And I remember him just putting it together and it was, you know, just sitting there watching this process. An absolute treat, you know. That was a long process doing that album, wasn't it? It was. I mean, well, what, a yeah. couple of years? Two years, well, yeah, yeah, on and off. But, well, mainly on, actually. It was long. I mean, it became like a day job, you know. We'd be working, I don't know, 10 or 11 till 7 or something and then go out for a nice meal. It was great. You know? Right. And, um, it was just an odd, odd time, you know. We, we we were a bit out of time by then. I mean, there's, the world had moved on, yes. of course. Yes, you know, and people were using making records with guys, and we were still using Fairlight threes. It was, it was a bit dinosaur, you know. So was it all um, done with that thought in process in mind? Because I know you got a Lita Adams, yeah, thing as well. Flew, yeah, you? yeah, she's who was definitely mentions. of that sort of way of doing. Yeah, things, yeah. Know, well, Badman's song, I think, is one of the examples where it worked best. Yeah, she's playing the piano. It's a live it session, guys, but it's her playing piano live. And um, I mean, what a brilliant piano player, you know, and it's not typical Tears of Fears. It's not really, it's not really of, of any time. Obviously, everyone says it's a bit like Little Feet, but um, mm. you know, that wasn't exactly fashionable in 1989. So, mm. Mm. but we didn't really care, or others certainly didn't care particularly. And uh, by this point, was it sort of acknowledged that you were kind of co-producing yeah, this now? So. Yeah, and yeah. make you were much involved as a decision making. As... Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, no, I wouldn't say really. I was. Dictating things. I mean, no, I would, no, no, I wouldn't say I, that. If I was asked, opinion. then I would make it. I'd give an opinion. Yeah, you know, but I wasn't going to sort of. And you know, now and again, I'd say stuff. But um, you know, Ronan was um, pretty much locked into his little world of how it's going to go. Then, so he really couldn't get a much of a. He didn't really want anybody to to um, try and get in there. I think. I mean, that's part of the reason that I'm, you know, I'm making no bones about it. He wasn't. He didn't want to have the battles anymore that you know you'd have with people pushing you. And mm. and of course, Chris and Ian Stanley had pushed him into developing shout and everyone who wants to work particularly Chris in that example you know, with amazing results with great but, results but yeah. you know sometimes people just don't you know, well, just, yeah. you know. yeah and uh, I, I mean one of the questions I was asking you was that thing where success changes mm. you know when you get that, that, that the game changer if you like where you know something has become fantastically successful but sometimes it can be uh, you know and there could be negatives towards mm. it and but what's nice to hear, I suppose, is that you went back into work with Roland again, mm. and it, it hadn't really changed. It was a, no, no. There was, there was. In some ways, it almost seems like it was better because well, you stuck it through, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. 
I was his ally, I think, and I, I still was his ally in, in the process. Yeah. Um, I mean, the one thing that led on, which was odd, was that the mix of that, because um, Dave Bates, the A&R guy, had, was insistent that someone else should mix it, even before I'd had a chance, which I was pretty pissed off about, you yeah. know, but it's obviously now happens all the time. We, we were all used to it. Mm. Um, so he wanted to get Bill pricing. And we, well, that's an interesting choice. It is. I know. mean, Bill is fantastic, Absolutely. but I can't imagine well, him doing this is the whole thing, but it, it was Flavor of the Month. I mean, Dave Bates, bless him, he had his flavours of the month. And he obviously, Bill had done something for him. Now, we didn't know, we didn't really know, we knew who he was, but it wasn't relevant to us at all. And uh, we really weren't keen. And we didn't give him a very easy time of it, particularly Roland, I think it's fair to say. But he was just, I mean, I offered to sort of plug the desk up for him because we're talking about 70, 64 tracks of fucking everything, you know, 12 things on the same track. And I thought, he's never going to find his way around this. And, uh, and he did, wasn't interested. So I, I came back in the mix and he'd have like one fader. He hadn't cross-patched it. So the one fader would have like lead vocal, middle eight, tambourine, you know, you know, it's like five things on there. I think, how are you coping with this? Um, you couldn't, you know, unless you manually change the EQ. Yeah. And I, I, he, some aspects to it were great. I mean, he had a great bottom end. It sounded really nice. But Roland just wasn't, he just wasn't there. Roland just wasn't interested in the slightest and basically dismissed it completely. And um, then we said, right, if anybody's going to do it, let's get Bob Clearman, because at least we know him, you know, Roland's done something with him before. And um, so and, he came... And a safe pair of hats. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so he came in with his rack, you know, and uh, he did Sowing the Seeds of Love, first of all, and it was completely wrong. And Bob, bless him, I want to mention this, because he's, I've, for quite a few years after this, he'd mentioned this in interviews, and he's such a modest bloke. I mean, he's done as we all know, billions of fantastic sounding records. Oh, he's amazing. But yeah. this is the one he often mentions, the one that got away, which yeah. is sowing the seeds of love. Yeah. So Roland walked in and just said, no, it's completely wrong. So poor Bob is like, this is pretty freaky for him. He said, well, you know, okay, well, tell me what you want. You know, no, no, this is completely wrong. Scrap it. You obviously heard it. What was... Yeah, I can't remember now. I just thought this isn't right. I can't right. remember how. Yeah. But it was, it just wasn't beatly, basically. Okay. You know, I think it probably sounded a bit American rock or something. Yeah. So that was pretty gutting for him. And um, then he went, to, he went next one he did was Woman in Chains, which is just a masterpiece. Uh, although we always said, I hadn't mixed it at all, and I always wanted to go, you know, because there's always things about the monitor mix you like, isn't mm. it? And I thought, mm, you know. But I mean, listening now, I could never top that. It's, it's no. a wonderful mix. And then he did Half of You and the Knife, which is, uh, this is, only, interesting, this is only interesting if you're interested. In it's half of him and half you, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, if you're interested. It was just because, um, literally, this happened at the cut, I mean, this is kind of typical describing the whole process of the album we're at mastery session in New York and um, we were still undecided about some of the mixes you know, and the, and the running order so the roadie was flying out from Britain with that tapes of, you know I'd meticulously put it on one half inch but no we put yeah. that tape of different mixes yeah. and we were there and we couldn't decide which version to use so we had this earlier version of Year of the Knife which Clearmount had done with programmed drums Fairlight drums and uh, and then we'd gone on and done endless different versions of it with including getting Simon Phillipson to do real drums on it. And I'd done a mix. And I, me and Kurt preferred my mix. And Dave Bates and Roland preferred the Clearman's one. And I thought, whatever, I don't care. I don't want to make a fuss. So um, Roland said, okay, we'll use, well, we're going to use the Clearman one. But there's a section I want you to edit in off your version, which is just towards the end where there's some sound effects, you know, wind and rain and stuff going on. So they left me to it and I queued it up and I did the in-edit, which is you previewed on the, 1630 you remember no yeah do I so um, and I left it running I thought this is great and I said what do you think they came back and said yeah it's brilliant so that was it basically so it goes by just chance and luck it goes from a program version which is very American rock you know which is why they went for uh, Bob Bob, Bob, Mm. yeah and then it kind of goes into more ways real drums and it's all kind of tamler if you like but you get the excitement coming on the end section now punters no one is ever going to know that but for me it's a little kind of um Strawberry Fields moment, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a Strawberry Fields moment. So I know yeah. exactly where the edit is, and yeah. I put it in a very sort of muso, wanky place. <laughs> it's like on a hi hat, you know, yeah. not a snare. Yeah, that's cool. uh, but yeah, it's, but that, it worked out fantastically. I was like, I I just, had... I was like after spent two years on this track, you know, yeah. whatever it was, yeah. which was, I never liked that song. It was always a problematic song. Yeah. I should tell you that at the time you were mixing that record, I was also working for. Debates oh, with right, yeah. Tim Palmer, and I was engineering an album for the mission. Oh, the mission! Right. Oh, Tim uh, talked about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and we were—I uh, remember—we were in a Swan Yard. Stu- I'm pretty certain it was Swan Yard Studios. Right. I think we were mixing, and you know, the door gets booted open, <laughs> and he comes, <laughs> he comes, Bates, and everyone's like, "Oh Jesus!" You know, 
Everyone's in trouble, you know. <laughs> it always felt like that, didn't it? Watch this. Yeah, yeah. Watch this fucking rubbish. We're all in trouble immediately. And he said, he's like, listen to it. He goes, yeah, great. Anyway, listen to this. This is proper. And he stuck on saying this is love. And I swear to God, we. I remember listening to it going, another fucking, you know, <laughs> you, man, oh, bane yeah. of my life. Right. Every time you want some tips, Chris. Yeah. You know, I'm still here for you. <laughs> Thanks, man. Honestly, it oh. was just sort of... But you know what? This it is, was I, fantastic. I've said this before, but I'm sure, but uh, that was like a Wednesday overnight mix. And, really? Uh, yeah, and sometimes I'll see it on outtakes on Spotify or something. It's called Wed OV. You know, people don't know what it means, but yeah. it's just yeah, Wednesday overnight. Yeah. And... Um, we did some more stuff on the next day and then we preferred it yeah. as it was so it was a day mix one day mix yeah. but, but, uh, I, but that I, happens I, no, but the thing was I thought it was shite I was, my, I was really? so lost the plot yeah. and everything else was shiny fair light and all kind of very programmed and yeah. neat and tidy bottom end yeah. this was kind of rumbly and yeah. you know now it sounds ridiculously hi-fi and posh then I just thought this is all over the place sonically but, so I spent yeah. weeks trying to remix that and Roland was just like let me get on with it we must have wasted thousands you know? I mean for Kurt very nicely on an interview said that it was Dave Bates who wanted it better which maybe there's a bit of that as well well let's see if we can get it better but yeah. um, now I take the blame for oh. well you know though Dave I mean I've having you know I've you know, mixed a few things myself and I, and I had exactly the same feeling when I did the uh, the Foo Fighters record ah. for, for Gil right okay. and I finished we finished the record I was mixing it in LA and I got it home and I listened to it and I thought I've really fucked oh, myself. Oh, that's horrible, that thing. Really, I thought, yeah. this just sounds fucking awful. Really? You know, because... Well, you were right. And I was right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'm joking. No! <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is that thing where, you know, you just are so excited yeah. and you oh, so yeah, yeah. want it to be and you know it can be brilliant. Yeah, and, I, yeah, and I'd done what I think I, I thought was right on it and everyone was, was happy. Yeah, yeah. But I put it on at home and just thought, this is the biggest part of shit I've really? ever fucking heard. This is awful, and it, it it is that thing, isn't it? You it then slowly you're like, oh yeah, you know. Well, it's time away, isn't it? Time away from it, and then it becomes, yeah. it becomes that's the version. It's the accepted version. I just got to say that House of Love stuff you did with Tim. I just oh, I loved it. Did you? Still sound, oh man, I haven't listened to it for years. So, well, I don't actually listen to that much, but well, no, nor it pops on occasion. <laughs> I still think it's just. I mean, for me, that's a sound of the ages as well. You know, it's you very Tim, but it, very it was big team. and reverby, but it's still really. So, you know, drum sound was great. Yeah, just, that well, that was. I'm. I did a mix for them later on. Did I tell you the house of the Beatles and the Stones? That was a great track. Yeah, it was a great. That track, was yeah. a great track. Yeah. So obviously, Tears Fears comes out. After that, one of the first times we met was you were mixing a band for EMI, and Dreaming. Maybe was that what they were called? Oh, the Dreaming. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd just not long been with reading recording with that. Oh, I did a bit of recording yeah, with you. Right, I came yeah. down to the townhouse yeah. and sort of got in the way a bit. Well, basically. to be honest, that was when I realised that I shouldn't be producing because I right. just lost the plot on it, really. You know? and, um, I, I think, but, oh, it, to be fair to me, two years of doing Two Sophia's really messed my head up in terms of Did you have any time off after? And, or did you... no, I probably had a little bit, but not enough yeah. to get my head. No, I didn't work on anything that was going to clear my head yeah. artistically and sonically. You know? I mean, yeah. So, you know, it was, it was just, I think I was trying to, I think everything needed was, in my head needed to be as complex as Seasons of Love and as huge and anthemic and of course I, t I think I tried to make shoehorn that onto the most inappropriate track really that's the only way I could describe it mm. and no it didn't work out I mean um, and they were actually really good I they were a good band I remember band, yeah. I remember it being coming down and it was and you were you were having loops firing loops and trying oh. to get loops in time and stuff like that and mm. it was pretty complex I remember probably <laughs> well, I, was yeah. only, I was only there for like three or four days yeah. I think you just needed an extra oh, I, I think it even got even more complex I right. remember you did some they did drums at Abbey Road with, I can't remember who the drummer was but you engineered that oh did I? yeah oh. yeah, okay. three. yeah. Um, but then after that did you start to find yourself slipping more towards yeah. mixing absolutely well you know if you get all those offers coming in to mix I mean you can do whatever you know five six albums whatever it is in the space of producing it you can mix five albums whatever it is in the space of producing and also you're getting you're obviously getting a lot of demands to do single mixes you get so you get a very busy schedule mm. and I don't know what comes first whether it's realising I'm better at mixing than I'm producing you know because you don't have to have that vision really mm. I mean you can work on a lot of things that you're not necessarily totally in love with but you really need to be in love with a, a project to produce it mm. and so I find I really, I, you know, from working in studios, even from the earliest days, it's expanded my tastes so much. You know, I came in quite blinkered. And um, working on all sorts of projects really 
expands your, your taste. So um, I could work on a track that I didn't particularly like, didn't like the, the artist necessarily. And if I came away thinking, actually, I quite like this now because of what I've done, well, that's, yeah. that's probably a good sign, you know, and I, I find that very satisfying. So that, there's that aspect to it. Um, and then you just it just comes a question of, to do produce an album or, or whatever a single or something you've got to turn down a lot of other work and that's quite tricky you know? and um, politically it's obviously a lot simpler you're only dealing with maybe you know. well as you say you don't you don't have to be emotionally involved exactly that's you the know, big difference that, you know? yeah and, and you I miss can, that a lot I mean, yeah. but not so much these days but I certainly have missed it I mean starting out with a, a blank reel of tape as it were as it used to be was always a great moment you know getting to know the band and being part of their little world and you know and this, this could go anywhere let's see what happens I used to really enjoy aspects of that, but I'd have to have some sort of idea of where it was going to go. And sometimes just bluffing it or seeing what, where it goes, I find I just... I, I mean, I'm thinking about it more and more now, actually, because I sort of put myself down a bit for it. But I think Tears Fears process really did screw my direct sense of direction up. And any kind of direct vision became... You know, we, we tried everything possible on that album. We just explored every avenue. We'd fly John Hassel over just to do some trumpet, you know. So it, it was everything was on the table, and it was undisciplined completely. And so I sort of I was full of that concept. And I think right, I'm going to try some African nose flutes on this pop record. You know, what I mean, okay, it could have been brilliant, but it wasn't. You know? Yeah. So everything I just thought oh, it's, I just lost direction. I lost focus. Do you think, in hindsight, what you should have done is do something radically different? Yeah. But like you know, go and produce a, a four piece rock yeah, roll band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't have known how to probably by then. Yeah. That's the trouble, you know, because yeah. I would have put an orchestra on it. And, yeah, African nose flute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna put those fucking nose flutes. That flute. song, it's a bit short of three minutes. I think we should make it to thirty. Not <laughs> <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> no, I, you're absolutely right. I needed a big, but you see, also, some of the worst sometimes actually. And that's probably. Well, I kind of felt like to be going back to being a tape op for a bit. Yes, I was talking to somebody just the other day, sort of about this, and saying there there were times when you know, you're in the middle of a session and you know there's loads going on, and particularly if you're producing it, you've got. You know, you've got the record company expectations, yep. you've got the band expectations, yep. and and there are times, you know, and you'd look at the assistant coming going, anyone want a cup of tea? Yeah. And you'd go, oh, I'd fucking do your job <laughs> exactly. in a heartbeat, mate. Well, I call it a white van man moment. Yeah. Because there'll be times when you're really stressed when you're driving into work and you see a bloke in a white van, and you go, oh, God, I'd love to do that. Yeah. He's going to knock off at five o'clock. Yeah. Go have a pint, you know, yeah. get his tea. <laughs> yeah, his tea. and he's fine. He's yeah. done his delivery. No, exactly. Just, but I think also with production, it was becoming more and more, you weren't being left to your own devices. I mean, we really, in the 80s, we were left to it, you know. I mean, particularly, I was a couple of mentioned that mix of um, House of Love I, I mentioned. And I remember Sit Down as well by James, which I mixed. Yeah, great. We, the record company never heard it. You know, I thought Dave Bates called up when I was doing the House of Love and said, uh, you know, how's it going? I said, well, I finished it. I'm, I'm going home. And he was like, I've heard it, you know. That's fine. That's what. Whatever. Trust me, it's all right. Yeah, it's a, trust me, it's all right. And the same with Sit Down. I mean, um, hey, like I said, it rang up and we, we were on the way out or something, you know. And um, luckily it worked out. It didn't always, but. Um, mm. You know, so that was, uh, but obviously that was, those days were coming, well, rather, not so much the mixing, but producing, you were left alone as well. Mm. Really, you know, mm. for better or worse, a lot. And um, that was changing, you know, you were getting more day-to-day -day interference, I suppose. Well, I suppose also the, the there was, as things progressed as well, uh, there was less money coming in. Yeah, People well, started, I mean, in, well, those, yeah. in those days of like, you know, the, uh, so, yeah. uh, sorry, uh, uh, Songs from the Big Chair, yeah, yeah. you know, there was no download. No, there was, there was nothing so, so... Chris had it in his contract that was, he wouldn't have to deal with the budget at all. Right. But if a record was even vaguely successful, mm. even if your record sold 50,000 copies back yeah. then, it was still generating a considerable amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. Because CDs were 15 quid yeah. each. Yeah. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? Um, oh, that's amazing. And you imagine that times a few million. Yeah. I mean, there is some serious dopamine. Oh, it was. It was just... And that started to change. Yeah, yeah. You know, it really did. I mean, there were a few things that you did which I, I didn't know, which was like suede. I didn't know oh, yeah. the, the beautiful ones. Yeah, I'm I really... mean, that's an incredible mix. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I, I'm really pleased with that album. It's, oh, no, I think they're fantastic, bad, and that and Erasure, funny enough, yeah. are the ones where I think I was ha lucky enough to be there at their one of their peaks. So maybe it's not. What their, did you do with Erasure? What did I, you do? I mixed chorus. Did you? Which is a brilliant. I'm not just not talking about my input. I'm just talking about the songs. Yeah. And I think the songs with Sway, they're fantastic songs. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, and Ed Bullard did a brilliant. That was still Ed was producing. That, yeah. Wasn't he, yeah. 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 Uh, and he was very involved in the mix. I mean, a lot of the mixes down is him. Well, as well. He's, he speaks very highly. I mean, I'm just doing a bit of research on 
on the web, and he and he said that a great part of that album is you. Oh, as, nice, as far as nice. as far as the, the sonic Funny enough, excellence, I'm, I mixed some stuff that he'd done many, many, many years later, and some of my samples still on there. But he was a nicked off the multi tracks, <laughs> which is fine. So mixing wise, yeah, you did. There's Suede, there's Manix, you did, and Goldfrap. Yeah, yeah. What did you do with Goldfrap? Um, so, a few things earlier on. So, I did some stuff on the first album, which is Felt Mountain, I think. Really can't remember that much about right. the titles. And I think some of them might have been single remixes. Yeah, yeah. The album, the album had been done. And then, and I knew Will, because obviously Will was sax player in Tears of Fears, alive. Cool. He played on Working Hour, you know. Cool. And, uh, well, not just live, but he played on, on the, all the solo stuff on Working Hour. Yeah. I mean, what a genius. He's another, a genius. Another. Just a great bloke. Is he? Love him to death, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I, one of those ones, I, was, I knew he was great as a musician, but no idea that, you know, you, you don't, well, I had no inkling that he would go on and do something like that. Oh, the stuff's incredible. I love Godfrey. I mean, it's, it's so amazing. good. The programming yeah. and the oh, sounds and everything. Yeah. I mean, you put the records on, and honestly, I think they sound amazing. They do. Absolutely. They just immediate, yeah, yeah. you know. I don't know how, what So I did very, it's like, a bit like the placebo. I sort of did very early stuff with it. You did Nancy, Nancy Boy? Nancy Boy, yeah, yeah. Amazing. That's great, isn't it? I love oh, it's amazing. Did you do Teenage Angst? No. Did not Nancy Boy, yeah. 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 They, well, I remember those were the two sort of earlyish singles. Right, I don't remember Teenage Angst. Oh, it's a great, it's a great yeah. tune, but Nancy Boy, I remember yeah. that was. Uh, yeah. It just suddenly were, sounded incredible. Yeah, lovely when bands that raw, isn't it? You know, oh, I think they're amazing. a brilliant band, but yeah. um, they've obviously got much more polished over the years. Yes. And, uh, so I've done various things with them and Goldfrapp over the years, and you know, get called back. And when did you decide to get your own place together? Was it? Well, I was at Townhouse, as I said, yeah, and then I got a room at Metropolis and started doing loads of stuff in there, and then. They chucked me out of there because they wanted to redevelop with the not the one room next door through. So um ended up at Sphere, where I'd what was Chris Kimsey's old room. Mm. Did you ever come down there? Yeah, yeah. I do work there once, yeah. Right. And that was actually great, actually. It worked out really, really well. because um, they basically had three studios there as well. So um I could easily nip in to one of the SSL studios if I need to do something there. I did a chromio album on the SSL there. It's the last time I worked on a big desk. And then I could take back pop into my room if I wanted anything you know it's just, it was a really nice situation and I love being around people you know so yeah. anyway when that finally closed <coughs> I was pretty devastated I spent a lot of time trying to find somewhere else because I really do like going out to work and I like just even if you're only some receptionist you know just talking to other people and um, so it's, it was just good generally but anyway that shut and I looked, spent a lot of time trying to find something equivalent mm. and just didn't and so my wife had suggested that I build this. Mm. I'd seen your place mm. and I uh, thought that looks really nice. Um, literally, we, they finished the wiring in here on the day I had to move out of Sphere, so it worked out perfectly. Perfectly, yeah. And now I'm very, I'm, dude, I still miss it, you know, but mm. when I've got the age I'm at, I'm sort of semi retired, so this is fine. You know? Do you feel like you are? Yeah, yeah really, yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, I've got enough work to keep me happy when it's there and I'm quite happy when it's not. You know, I've got various, I've got little projects I'm doing with a friend of mine. Mm. But I do get asked, I, I don't know. I, uh, about you but I quite often get things through I think well what's wrong with this oh mate you know, all and, the time and I don't think I've ever actually done it because you can't it's our job you know um, but sometimes I'll say look I really don't know what you expect to do because this is very occasionally I'll say this you know I really don't know what to do with it um, and sometimes you actually fess up to it and say look you know, are you sure and usually people say well always people say well just do what you do and I couldn't I've got no idea what that is but usually it works out and people like it you know so Sometimes I'll I'll dive myself crazy listening to their mix, thinking oh, I've I've lost it here, you know, and, and um, yeah. But usually I do what I do, well, and people listen. Whatever to it. it is you do, Dave, it is oh, great, man. It is brilliant, it makes and, and uh, uh, what well, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Well, it's been a real pleasure. It's been a real pain in the ass, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I never want to talk to you again. That's no, we are old mates, and it's been fantastic. Really, really enjoyable. Brilliant. Dave Bascom there. Really hope you enjoyed listening to that. Remember, you can hear all our other episodes with Flood, Gil Norton, Maximo Park, Douglas Dare, Sophie Hunger, Stephen Street, Field Music, This Is The Kit, Dave Erringer and Tim Palmer on your usual podcast platforms right now. So please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review if you get a second. We're going to leave you with a short burst of chat just as Chris was pretty much on his way out the door when Dave told Chris about a slightly unusual approach to remixing one of the Cranberry's biggest hits, Linger. See you next time. Steve mentioned me in his one, and he said, "Do it." Went off to Dave Basketball. That's right, yeah. he did. Yes, he did. And the thing was, I've got to mention this because he's so right. 
I mean, what was wrong with his mix? Yeah. He went on to be a huge hit, you know. Yeah. But I can sort of understand why record labels do it because obviously let's have a shot, see, you know, if this other guy comes up with something better. Yeah. But the, the stupid story, this is, oh God, this is so ridiculous. Um, before I got asked, we were, we were basically, we were doing it at a weekend. What was the song? Linger. It was actually Linger. Right. And um, we were doing it at a weekend and the a and wasn't available, wasn't around, he'd gone away. And I got a call from Noel, I think it was, from the band. I'm not going to do the accent, but he said, it's a few days before he said, can we keep the strings? I thought, what? What on earth are you talking about? What are you, I'm remixing, you know. I said, of course I'll keep the strings, it's, it's on the tape, you know. Mm. I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. So it became obvious because I turned up at the studio and the road, the road was setting the band's gear up in the studio. I mean, was, it's, I think it's a lovely story because I'm not knocking them because they were just so naive, they're so young. They didn't really know where a remix was or... Either that, or maybe they thought, fuck it, we don't like that version, we want another go doing it, and no one's going to be around to stop us. So basically, he wanted to re-record the whole thing. Now, thinking back, obviously I should have said, no, 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 that's not what we're doing here. You know. But the record he wasn't, guy wasn't around, it's really his job you know, to spell out what was happening here. And I thought, well, maybe this has been a discussion. Anyway, I just thought, I think at the bottom of my head, they were nice kids, and I thought, let's see what happens. Wow. I know, it's, you know thinking now, I've really blown my fucking chance all the rules I could have had off that record anyway so I let it happen <laughs> so you recorded I re-recorded well I tried re-recording it and we did and um, obviously we kept the strings because we were overdubbing to a copy of the tape but um, and Dolores you know she wanted to she was, maybe it's just because she wanted to redo re-hear do her vocal and that was the might have been the impetus behind yeah, it yeah. and I kind of turned up about 6 o'clock on Sunday night and says no nah, it's crap I don't like it at all <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh fuck, okay, uh, because I got carried away with the process, like you do, and this is why I'm not a producer, probably. <laughs> I should have said, whoa, hang on a minute. So yeah, you had the remix Stephen's version. I did, no, re- I did end up remixing. I think, well, I've got, I've still got a few hours here. Yeah. Fuck it, I'll get Stephen's version up and yeah. remix. And we ended up using Dolores's new vocal. And to listen to I was, that, these things emerge, unfortunately, um, now on greatest hits and stuff. And I listened to it the other day. My version is now out there. Wow. And bless her, Dolores's vocal is really not great at all. And the mix isn't great because I only spent a few hours on it. And there was nothing wrong with Stevens anyway. You yeah. know? So, um, anyway, our mix wasn't as good as his. So, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes it just doesn't happen. No, I mean, you know, and there's, as you quite rightly say, sometimes it's an experiment. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, you might get something out of it. Just in terms of we, everyone gets it wrong, I and mean, I've done the Bob thing, but I'm not going to mention who this was, but I was doing some tracks on a golf rap album. And Wills came in and said, Look, I've got this version that says, It's really not right. What do you think's wrong with it? And he said, Is it too compressed? And I said, No, the drums are fucking far too loud. And I sort of he went, okay, thanks, and went back and thought, well, hang on, why don't you ask me to mix it? <laughs> yeah. Just asking me to tell you what's wrong with the other guy's mix. You know? yeah. But I mean, I say this guy's a really huge mixer, and, and everyone gets it wrong every now and again. You know, so. Well, you do. You yeah. can't. You, you can't. You know, win every time. Yeah. But yeah. Um, we win enough times to keep employed. <laughs>